Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. Today I am honored to be joined by Tasha June to talk with her about her brand new book, Tell Me the Dream Again, Reflections on Family, Ethnicity, and the Sacred Work of Belonging. You know, here on the Learner's Corner, really what we want to do is we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations to where you can show up. And this is what we talk. This is what we're going to talk about a lot today in, a, in my conversation with Tasha is we want to show up and create a place to where you can belong, whether or not we agree or not, that we can have conversations where we disagree and and really talk about anything, but still belong. That's what we want to do here in the Learner's Corner and create that safe place. And along the way, we share some of the things that we're learning about as well. And if you want to keep up with me and some of the things that I am learning about, please uh, subscribe to my Substack, to where I give three things each week that I am currently learning from. And it could be, or I should say, most of the time it's three things that I'm learning about and sometimes it's just things that I'm loving that I've discovered on uh, the internet and it could be anything from the latest MCU trailer to a great book that I'm reading to a podcast episode to a video to a song anything like that that I am just loving and I just want to give it to you so that because I know that sometimes it's really hard to find things that you enjoy And so I just want to share the things that I am currently enjoying and you can enjoy them too as well. And again, you can just go to the show notes and check all of that out. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Tasha June and let me tell you a little bit about her and then we're going to jump into the conversation. Tasha June is a Korean American storyteller. Writing has always been the way God has led her toward home and the hope of shalom. And she currently writes as a monthly contributor for Encourage and has been featured in publications such as Relevant Magazine, Home Life, and The Mud Room. And she currently lives in the greater Indianapolis area with her husband and three children and is the author of the book, Tell Me the Dream Again. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Tasha, it is good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And you know, you've written this book, Tell Me the Dream Again. And just as we're getting started, you know, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about the title of the book and kind of the inspiration behind that. Sure. So, um, you know, it first started out with um, a different working title um, that never quite felt right. But, you know, the the process of writing and editing and all of that is long. And so we kind of just held on to that for a really long time. And when it came time to decide, um, I was in a lot of conversations and texts with my editor um, and, you know, had this long list of maybes, but none of them felt quite right. So this actually, Tell Me the Dream Again, comes directly from the beginning of the book. And it's something that I actually said um, in the book and in real life to my mom, um, because it opens with 
this dream that my mom had had this recurring dream and me asking her, tell me the dream again. So it was actually one that my editor sent in a text back and forth. Like, what about this? And right when I read it, I was like, that's it. That's yeah. always been it. You know, just didn't know it. Um, that's the title. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell, can you tell us about the dream that you wanted to hear? Like just continuously. Yeah. So on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So when I was younger, my mom said that she had this recurring, it wasn't a ton of times, but this dream more than once um, about, well, she starts it off and you kind of have to read it like in the dialogue, but um, she starts it off with saying, you know, it was nighttime. There were stars in the sky um, in her own voice. And then suddenly there was a tiger, you know, that the stars kind of made the shape of a tiger um, and that the tiger is roaring and then it turns into you. And so, I mean, it was just, there wasn't much more to it other than that, but it just really struck me um, when I was younger and always, it's always kind of struck me and stayed with me because I think I've, I've never felt like a tiger or what you would imagine when you think of a tiger, you know, I think we think of strength, um, voice, you know, um, and power. And those are things that I always felt were far out of my reach, um, as a kid. So when she told me that dream, it was something that I kind of just hung on to, like, maybe, maybe I could have those things someday. Um, or just maybe something that just felt so far from reality could become true. Mm, yeah. And I'm curious, I, I would imagine that like it, it's the dream, but it's probably also because it's coming from your mom too. Right. right? right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I was just curious about that. Um, you know, one, one of the things that you say in the book, which I would love to have you just elaborate a little bit more on, and I think it's a good jumping on point to what so much of the book is about also is uh, you say, I've always felt unfit as Korean, but somehow too Korean everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about your experience in that and, and being too Korean, but not being enough Korean as well? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was born to um, a Korean immigrant mother and to a white um, or Caucasian father who grew up in California. Um, when I was younger, it it was very normal. My normal was that there were two cultures in a home. Um, that was normal to me. Um, we ate Korean food, um, all the ways that I was nurtured as a child, mostly I mean, from both of my parents, but mostly from my mother with like food, um, you know, the things that she sung to me, all of those things were in Korean. It was, it was very Korean. Um, but I didn't know that. I just knew that that was normal. And so when I got a little older, um, we moved to Japan and then that's when we traveled to Korea for the first time, um, was over the summers. And before going, I remember thinking, well, before moving to Japan, I felt very aware that I was an American and that we were moving to an Asian country um, that wasn't my Asian country, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I was there, it was this whole other experience of, um, you know, telling people I'm an American and receiving strange looks because I didn't at the time to them look like someone who was American or what they thought an American looked like. And then going to Korea for the first time thinking, well, I'm going to feel more at home in this Asian country because this is this is us. This is me. and kind of having a rude awakening there through a few different circumstances, um, feeling like, oh, I'm not seen as a Korean here in Korea. Um, and so kind of just having all of those things in question. And then later when I got older, you know, just all the things that were normal to me, the ways that my mom nurtured me, that that, that I grew up, um, those didn't always fit in in the larger context, you know, the larger culture that I was in, depending where I lived. And so, yeah, just constantly had these feelings of, 
this is who I am, but then wait, no, I don't feel like I'm enough of that to even be able to say that in this place or in this place, if that, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, that does make sense. You know, you, you alluded to it a little bit. Would you mind sharing like one of the, one of the first instances, whenever you're in Korea and you, like, I can imagine that you have this, you have this hope, just what you were saying about of like, finally I'm home. I'm with my people. Right. then you discover that that's not the case. Talk to me about one of those times yeah. where you discovered, man, it, it just isn't what you hoped it had yeah. would be. Um, I think right off the bat, I remember, and I wrote about this in the book, but right off the bat, we get when my family arrived in Korea um, for one of those visits, we got into a taxi. And I remember my mom sat in the front and me and my dad sat in the back. And um, I can't remember if my sister was on that trip or not, but anyway, I, we sat in the back and I remember hearing my mom and I've heard her speak to speak Korean to others, but speaking to this taxi cab driver and looking at my dad and then realizing that he and I have no idea what's going on. Like we can't understand what's going on. Um, and kind of being hit with at, at first time, and I've been in situations in the States where that had, it, it had, you know, I had been like that, but I had felt like the majority of the people around me are not doing that. So all of a sudden I was hit with, Oh, he understands my mom in a way that I don't, this stranger who's driving the taxi. And so does everyone else around. And this distance between us, which I hadn't really felt before between my mom and I felt like almost like something that I could grab, like just, and so that, that there was something there. Um, and then there were a few, there were a lot of moments, you know, with, with people that we talked to who they're like, oh, it's her American daughter. Didn't see me as Korean. Um, and then there was a whole instance with a bunch of kids that we went to like a dinner party and some of my cousins were there and the neighbor kids were there. And this kid was like poking me with a, with a toothpick and he wasn't saying anything, but he was talking, he was speaking Korean to the other kids and they were laughing and just feeling the sense of, wow, I am different than everyone here. I don't belong. Some of these people are my family. Um, but I can't, I can't even communicate what's happening, like for them to help me, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So just feeling, um, yeah, just like an outsider while also experiencing all these familiar things, like, you know, these core things like food um, and sense and just things that I was so used to, but not being able to partake in them in the same way as the others that were around me. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the things that you write in the book is you say the lie of cultural assimilation is that it leads to belonging. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I would love uh, to have you just elaborate on is talk to me about some of the ways to which you tried to belong. You tried to, you know, maybe, maybe just fit in more that either like just were harmful to you or just didn't, didn't work for the community that you were trying to join in. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think in most in instances, whether it took time to realize it, um, it hasn't worked, but it feels very enticing. Um, when we moved, so we moved around a lot. When we moved, moved back to the States, back to California where I was born, and then we moved to Indiana where I live now. Um, but we moved right before high school. And so that's a really tender time, I think, for anyone, no matter where you're from. Um, but we moved from a very kind of diverse area to an area that was not very diverse. And um, it was the first time, you know, I walked into a setting my first day at this brand new school. It was the first time I kind of like looked around and thought, I'm the only one that looks like this. And I don't think I'd really thought that much about it. I mean, I had felt things when we were in different places, um, but felt, you know, like, gosh, I, I look different than 
everyone in this classroom and kind of like picking up on cues felt very much immediately like I need to hide everything that looks different. Um, and so in the book, I talk about, you know, I, I went home and I still remember this. I went home and I tried to find the darkest and baggiest clothes. I, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but it was like the, the go-to for me, the darkest and baggiest clothes in my drawers. I remember like tearing through my dresser to try to find things that would kind of hide me, you know, yeah. um, that would hide my skin tone that would just hide me, um, as a person. And, um, that instinct to kind of hide and assimilate because you don't want to be othered. There were also some other things that happened on that first day where it was like people were coming up to me saying, are you the new girl? Are you Mexican? Are you Chinese? Like all these just like kind of audacious questions <laughs> wanting me to explain my, you know, myself. Um, and so that desire to assimilate felt like, I mean, I didn't even think about it. It's just what I did, you know, and I did that for years and it kind of built built, you know, over time until it kind of all fell apart. And so, mm -hmm. um, I think I just really thought that if I could hide and blend in, then I could belong. And then these uncomfortable feelings would be gone. You know, mm -hmm. I could get rid of them. Yeah. Was there like a, like a boiling point or a point to where like you, you just had enough of doing mm -hmm. this or was it more of like a gradual process for you of just realizing mm -hmm. the sense of like not belonging and wanting to belong? Um, definitely gradual. I think that there were things that kind of chipped away at it and it definitely like co like it's connected to my journey of faith. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say there was a moment when um, I watched the movie Joy Luck Club and then went on to read um, more of Amy Tan's works. Um, I hadn't been introduced to her before watching that movie. Um, and it wasn't even one that I was interested in, but a friend had left it at our house and I ended up watching it the next day um, after everyone had left. And just, you know, in the opening credits, um, Ming Na Wen is, you know, she's playing June and she is, um, you know, reading this beautiful excerpt from the actual book. And I started weeping. And I think up until that point, along with all that hiding, I was very, um, very deep feeler, but I would never show any of those feelings. So just constant poker face all the time. Um, and just kind of went on with that hiding who I was. Um, but it was like this well kind of broke. It was one of the first times I had seen, you know, these are Chinese American women and their mothers, but I had seen something that would kind of resembled my mom and I's relationship and our journey. Um, and I wept through that. I mean, from the beginning started weeping and just like throughout the movie wept like in, in such an ugly, deep way and so i think mm -hmm. that really it kind of there was something to watching um the story unfold on screen the story this untold story in me kind of being prodded at through mm -hmm. this film um that just kind of broke this well in me so i remembered that distinctly um and my mom actually was behind me asleep on the couch and i remember her kind of waking up and she just kind of held me because i think she knew um, you know, she had known what was going on, but even, even though we hadn't really talked about it directly, I think she knew and could feel that. So that was a really distinct moment, but there were a lot of little things like that, um, where I just, you know, felt the pursuit of God. I just felt like there was, um, someone trying to uncover those things, um, in a positive way. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of that and it was very gradual, but there was still a lot of fear for a long time wrapped up in all of that for me. Yeah, you know, you mentioned your faith. Talk to me about like in in the midst of this this feeling of like not belonging to this unbelonging. Talk to me about like what it was like with your faith because 
Like I can imagine, like you find out about God, you find out about what life is supposed to be like in the Christian community, and yet you have these these feelings of not belonging yeah. also. Yeah. Um, well, I started, you know, I had a lot of encounters um with either um with God through like stopping in at church. We didn't really grow up going to church or, you know, mm-hmm. in a faith community. And so a lot, it was like bits and pieces. Um, and I write about that in my book. And then um, went to like a summer camp, you know, got invited to a friend's church, you know, a lot of different things trying to piece together. My grandparents had a really strong faith and talked to me about that a lot. Um, when I moved to Indiana towards the end of high school, so this is after a few years, um, I had a friend that invited me to a youth group. And so again, we're still in the same kind of type of demographics, right? Um, but I was invited to this youth group and it reminded me of this Asian American Christian summer camp I had gone to, but that experience prior was something that I kind of went to and left there because I didn't, it felt like this thing that just existed for that week um, over the summer in my life. I had no other environments at the time that were, that had other Asian Americans, you know, nothing, nothing like that. But I went to this youth group with my friend and um, it reminded me a lot of that camp minus the Asian Americans. Um, And I remember being really drawn in towards it. And so I kind of jumped headfirst and, um, we got really involved, both of us together. We were really involved. We, um, I started meeting with the youth pastor's wife, you know, started to get to know people, started to read my Bible and kind of understand um, all those bits and pieces prior, how they were connected, um, who Jesus was, was so just drawn in by that. At the same time, was very much a part of this um, this community that it was a great community, but um, it was not diverse or just, you know, there wasn't very much in the way of, you know, knowing how to um, mentor or disciple um, anyone that looked different than, than the majority that was there. And so I remember um, bringing up with my youth pastor's wife, once we would pray together and she was talking to me about like, you know, what's, what's, what's going on with something that you're struggling with. And thinking, I really want to talk to her about my relationship with my mom and some of these tensions I feel. Um, and I wouldn't have said as being an Asian American then, but just um, growing up Korean and just some of these things that I write about in the book, I was trying to express. Um, and I remember not even knowing how to do that. And even when it would come out, it would be kind of jumbled. And there was a there was kind of a response, um, not just from her, but from others of like, well, it does, you know, it doesn't really matter because your identity is in Christ and you don't have to worry about those things. And I think it was said to encourage me um, because you could, I mean, I think people could see how, how much I was struggling, but it really just kind of shut me down. And so for a long time, my experience in my faith was that, you know, I'm, I was taking cues from people around me, like trying to just even shove that away. So it almost like encouraged that assimilation without knowing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. this like, okay, there must just be something wrong with me. I just, you know, I'm so stuck on all this stuff. It's something like that. I just need to get over, you know, and just my identity is in Christ. And so I need to just be fine with that, (laughs) not have any issues, you know? And so for a long time, that was kind of how I tried to move forward. Um, and again, hadn't had more gradual moments where it was like, no, that's not all there is. It's not just a mustering, you know, um, of belief or, you know, this, um, you know, pretending like these things aren't hard. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Talk to me about what led to that change in you. Yeah. Um, I really just 
walking with God over time, um, having a relationship that, you know, was trying to like grow in intimacy, um, on all ends. Um, but yeah, after, after that, I went away to college, I got involved with another Christian organization, ended up, um, doing an internship and joining staff with them. Um, so was growing a lot, but still was carrying again, this, you know, just wasn't working through some of this stuff that was kind of at my core of who I was. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and so I ended up moving overseas and, um, and it was, is wild because I moved to Germany. So it's not even anything tied to, you know, my past or my heritage or anything like that. But, um, and it was there where I was kind of like starting to come face to face with, do I really, I was telling people, you know, that God loves them. And inside I was feeling like, gosh, do I know that God loves me, but do I really believe that he loves all of me as a whole person? Do I even know who that whole person is? And so what have I even offered? You know, um, how have I even received love from God? Have I received it wholly or have I received it somewhat? And I'm just trying to, you know, move forward as this professional Christian. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, 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 that experience, it kept kind of poking away at that, you know, just that that deeper part of me. And I met some other mixed race friends overseas who, um, who I really connected with. And we talked about a lot of these tensions and I felt like, um, some of them were Christian, some weren't. And, um, and I remember feeling guilty, like, you know, why do I, why is this so important? It's because I had never walked through it. And I think that God was really trying to dig deeper, wanted me to experience love in that, you know, that as my whole self. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So was, again, was that just a gradual thing? Was there something, an experience, you know, someone that like, almost like pushed you to like come face to face with like, I have to deal with this. Like it's reached the point to where like, I have to deal with this. Right. Um, it does feel like it was more gradual for me. Yeah. Um, I do. And then, and then later, so, I mean, I did start to kind of peel away at that. I remember there were moments mm -hmm. and again, wrote about in the book where I decided to make this Korean dish. Um, and I remember in that moment, so, I mean, it was like coming face to face, but I remember in that moment having this feeling like I feel alive right now. I am making mm -hmm. something that feels like me. I am offering it, you know, um, to this group of people that I love and it feels I feel alive right now. I feel like God is with me and very much a mm. part of this, like folding these dumplings, like, you know, yeah. I had never really experienced something like that before. And so I feel like it, in a way that was like a, a wake up, like, yeah. okay, this is how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be offering my whole self and that's risky. You never know how people are going to respond. Um, but that's also the only way to experience love and be changed by it and love others in return. And so um, there was a moment like that. Um, and then there were a lot of gradual things, I think, along the way. And then another huge shift was um, when I became a mom and had kids. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of things that happened um, after that, that really just I couldn't ignore anymore. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do want to touch on that uh, in just a minute. You know, one, one of the things that I think it, it speaks to what you're saying, what I love, and I would love to uh, just have you elaborate a little bit more on it, is this quote. And you say, I knew it wasn't my responsibility to give others an easier, more familiar version of myself to love. Can you talk to me about that and kind of expound on what led that or what led to you uh, just deciding that? Yeah. Um, well, I think I had done that for a very long mm -hmm. time. Um, mm -hmm. I had felt the weight of that responsibility um, and felt like I needed to give people an easier version because what if 
I didn't and the love wasn't there, right? Then what, then what would I do? Um, and I think that was the question that I carried all along in all of that gradual change. Um, but at that point, when I did write that, that was like, there was a lot going on in the world. Um, I had young kids then. Um, and I was starting to open up with this group of other moms about, you know, just some of the experiences I had had in high school, in college, um, and also some of the things I really felt um, as a biracial Asian American, Korean American woman and mom and what I felt towards my kids and the world I wanted them to grow up in. Um, and so I remember bringing things up and feeling very much like this is the time, you know, I loved these, these women that I was in a group with. I knew that they loved as much of me as they knew. And it felt very much like this is the time to just say it and not carry that responsibility. Like say the things that you want to say and let things fall where they may, you know, let people respond how they're going to respond, whether you know how they will or not and move from there. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, talk to me about like, cause I think at some point or not at some point, in all of our lives, we have relationships that we can't necessarily like escape from, or we can't run, we can't run from them. <laughs> it could be family. It could be, um, I don't know if it would be friends or not, but like at work or at church or things like that to where it's just like, it's, it's just hard to be around them because either yeah. they have an idea of who you, who, who they want you to be, but yet you still need to be around them. Right. Talk to me about like how you've, how you have learned to navigate some of those mm. types of relationships. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that we have this responsibility to show up as our whole selves, but I don't mm. think that that means that we have to show up, you know, barging, you know, yeah. barging in or just um, trying to make a point about who we are. I think, I think it can look different depending on the environment that you're in. And I also think something that's become really important to me that I maybe didn't have before was just, you know, trying to make sure that I am, you know, it's exhausting some in, in situations like I think you're describing, I think it can be mm -hmm. exhausting um, sometimes to be met with a lack of love or just um, a lack of understanding, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think the response can be, oh, we can try to make them understand, but I think that's not always gonna, that doesn't work. Yeah. And I think we can keep showing up as ourselves true to ourselves, but I think it's also good to have some boundaries, um, you know, and to also realize that maybe after I spend time with these people, I'm going to need some space to recover. I don't know, whatever that can look like, you yeah, know, just yeah. to, you know, to kind of honor yourself, but also to even honor that person and where they're at, you know, just the reality of where they're at and, and how they see you and that, and not being able to control that, you know, you can control yourself and how, and whether or not you're showing up honestly, um, and your boundaries maybe. And even sometimes then it's hard to control the boundaries because you don't yeah. always have that, you know? Um, so I think just being realistic about what you might need and what you can control is really important. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, sometimes they, <laughs> yeah, well, very yeah. much. And just what you're saying, sometimes they just blow right past your boundaries. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, knowing that you might have to respond to that too. So that's yeah, yeah. <sighs> yep. Um, you know, you, you mentioned on this journey of belonging that like having kids impacted that as well. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of people would say this. I think, you know, that the experience of having a kid just kind of helps you understand maybe what your parents felt, you know, um, with you. Um, but also just kind of jolts, you know, it's just a little bit jolting to kind of think about the world that they're in, um, as opposed to you just kind of 
bustling through, you know, it seems almost easier and the world that you want them to be in. And so, um, you know, when we had, when we had kids, I think I started to think about, gosh, how are they going to see themselves? Um, are they, what are they going to think about being Korean? And, and obviously like they, if we, we could say that they're a quarter Korean, but I, but I don't really like to do that. I like to just like, what, how are they going to feel about yeah. being, um, Korean American and how are they going to feel part of, um, Asian America? Are they going to kind of shove that off? Um, where are they going to feel tempted to hide? Cause that's like the biggest thing for me. Um, mm-hmm. probably because that's been my own experience. Um, so anyway, I started to think about that a lot when we had our first son and, you know, um, when we had our first son, my mom made the seaweed soup for me and I kind of shoved it off. It was like this remnant of something that I kind of rejected and had rejected in my hiding or in my assimilating, um, because it definitely prior to all of that felt too Korean. And so she had made it, she was trying to explain to me that it's a special soup that I needed to eat it. Cause I had just given birth. Um, and I kind of, you know, took a spoonful, um, and didn't outright reject it. But then after she left, I dumped it down the drain and, and then I was in a Barnes and Noble and I was looking at cookbooks, trying to find healthy food to feed my kid as a mom, suddenly caring about it. Um, and I saw this Korean cookbook. So I started flipping through and there was this whole section on this soup. So this is just one example. Um, and it had this long explanation, you know, explaining in, in a really Western way why the soup was important. So my mom had tried to explain it to me in her way and I kind of had shoved it off. So I, it kind of broke something in me and I started crying, just realizing the significance of Korean mothers feeding their daughters this this soup and feeding their kids this soup on their birthdays. Um, and just remembering that I dumped the whole thing down the drain and just this, this long pattern that I had had prior of hiding and rejecting um, my Koreanness, you know, and cu- that coupled with wanting my son, who's like right there in the stroller to embrace that part of him. Um, yeah. it just did me in. And so I think, you know, it started kind of shifting, shifting the way I really thought like in detail about what am I rejecting here and what do I need to embrace? Like what work do I need to do to embrace, you know, not in a way that's false or like, you know, trying to embrace something that is not, really me or embracing yeah. it. I think I should be, you know, to be more Korean, but really just the things that I rejected from my own family of upbringing and what things can I embrace to model this for my, my kids. Yeah. What, what's like another aspect of your Korean heritage that you've, that you've embraced that has just been really joyful for you? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of joy more recently. Um, my family and I, we, we celebrate, things like Lunar New Year or Chuseok, which is like a harvest celebration. Um, and those are things we've kind of learned to celebrate. I didn't grow up celebrating those things, but it's been it's been a joy to kind of learn about it as a family. Like this is something that comes from Korea. This is what they eat. Let's, let's you know, go get this stuff and try it. Let's, you know, my daughter really wants to make the, the rice cakes, but I've been really worried about making them because I'm still learning to, to make Korean food in a way that is edible. <laughs> I mean, I can, but it's not like my mom. Um, Anyway, so just, I think that's been a joy. Um, We've done different things to kind of move towards that part of our heritage and also the other parts of of our heritage as a family. Um, And so just being active in that has been just a joy. And it's been such a joy to do with our kids. You know, it's not something that we really, we don't force anything, but just providing like books, providing opportunities to celebrate culture. that's been a huge joy for me and for our whole family. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just been really fun. And it's, it's not, 
it's really not hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what you mentioned, can you just explain what those are? Cause I'm not, I'm yeah. just not familiar with them. Yeah. So Chusok is, um, it's, it's a, it's like a harvest um, festival and it's, okay. um, yeah, it's, it coincides with like, it's after, I forget what it is something with the moon because <laughs> we're yeah but anyway um and families from all over korea get together it, and in korea you know people take off work and they they just eat together um they eat specifically some specific foods but one of the most famous is songpyeon which is um a rice cake with like a, a pine kind of pine needle base on the inside and there are these like kind of pastel colors usually um mm -hmm. and so yeah, that's just something that we've started to do as a family. We talk about it. We we try to make the traditional foods that people have on that day. Um, and so, yeah, it's we don't really get together with family that's out of town at this point. We'd love to with my parents at some point. Yeah. But we just do what we can. And then yeah. Lunar New Year is like Chinese New Year, which also yeah. is, again, the moon, the lunar um, calendar. And so um, we get dressed up and we do different things. You know, um, we eat. And this, this last year, we actually got together with another mixed um, race Korean American family. And it was so fun. We had a ton of food and we actually had friends that that weren't Korean come and make other foods and get to just share that, you know, with them and celebrate with them. So, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the ideas that you talk about in your book is this idea of surface level belonging. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, can you, can you kind of elaborate what that is and maybe, um, contrast that to like, what does like true belonging or like deep belonging look yeah. like? Yeah. Um, so when I first started kind of opening up about, you know, things that had to do with race or things that were going on in the world, um, things that, you know, that I had experienced, um, I found that there was this, there was a lot of openness from some people, but there was also this like almost fear that you could almost feel in the room of like, oh, you know, I'm kind of almost wanting to assign it with like, oh, you're talking about this movement. Do you know what that movement stands for? Or like mm. just this sudden, like, um, like, oh, we can't go there. You know, we can't talk yeah. about that, you know, and also along with that, this, we need to be unified as Christians. And I remember at first it was something that kind of shut me down. Cause it was like, oh, well I do want to be unified. I don't want to like disrupt that, you know, and that, that was kind of years ago, but I remember it kind of shutting me down, making me feel like, oh gosh, I can't, I can't talk about this because it's causing <laughs> disunity. And then kind of realizing over time, like, wait a minute, no, that's not really what's causing the disunity. Um, so I can be quiet and we can stay surface level and I can not open up again. Um, and everything can kind of feel um, at no cost to others, but, but more so to me or to, to someone else that maybe feels like they're rocking the boat, you know, can feel like, okay, um, we can keep, we can keep, we can keep things smooth, smooth water here. Um, if we do not bring our whole selves. And so we're kind of back to that again, I guess. Um, and so again, it feels like the responsibility is on, was on me, or it felt like, you know, in other situations on people of color or just, you know, whoever is maybe experiencing some kind of marginalization. Um, and it was just difficult. It felt like, oh, we're the problem, but mm -hmm. I think that if we want to go beyond that, and I felt I've heard that more recently too, and just that people are tired of having conversations about race. Um, people are weary, but it's always kind of referring to um, maybe someone that's just talking about it for the first time, you know, that hasn't had mm -hmm. to think about it. And so I would think that deeper belong is being able to show up as your whole self, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. And 
on all ends, being able to receive that and work through it. Um, not that you're going to tidy something up, but that um, people are welcome to come with, you know, with anger, with hurts, with um, real experiences um, that they've had and bring those things to a relationship and not have them kind of shut down mm -hmm. just in a simple way. There's a lot more yeah. to it, I think, than that. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, another idea that you talk about in your book is you talk about grief a lot mm -hmm. and how grief transfers and passes from one generation to another. Can you talk about how, like how that does so and how you've seen that play out in your own life and even in other people's lives? Yeah. Um, so growing up, I always had this sense of um, just kind of sadness that lingered and I didn't really talk about it because no one was really talking about that. Um, and I always felt like I, you know, I knew some of the stories of what my mom had gone through, but, and I knew that my life was really different. So I had this kind of inner dialogue, even as a kid, where I was like, well, I shouldn't really feel sad about that. Cause I didn't, I haven't gone through anything like that, but I did. It's like, I felt very aware of like the sadness that I just kind of carried and, and always thought something must be wrong with me. Um, mm. because I didn't, I, there's not all there. I mean, not that I didn't go through hard things, but um, it wasn't anything like what my mom had gone through, you know, um, but I felt very much like I carried some of the stuff, like when she would tell these stories, I felt like um, I carried some of that in me and I wouldn't have known how to explain it in any other way. When I got older, um, I, I guess even more recently, I learned about intergenerational trauma and like some of the mm -hmm. studies around that. And it just made a lot of sense to me. I, um, it just right away would click anytime I would read anything about it. And then I learned more about Han, which is Korean. And just, it, it just kind of made sense. It was like, oh, this is something Korean, you know? And my mom would talk about things like this too. Like she had this, um, she was comfortable with sadness and talking about it. Not when we would go out in public and were around others that weren't Korean, but she was comfortable with it. So I watched her kind of move into different um, different groups of people where grief was maybe more acceptable, you know, as as an expression and and something mm -hmm. that you just talked about. Even over time, not not something that was okay for a minute and now you're better. Um, so anyway, I think as I've gotten older, I've started to understand, like there have been more, there's more science, you know, at least in the Western world, there's yeah. science backing it up. Whereas I think culturally, you know, Han has been a part of Korean culture for, for, I mean, centuries. So um, it's just started to make a little bit more sense to me. Like when I look at my childhood and all the grief that I held, it's like, that makes so much sense. I don't really need the science. I mean, it helps maybe in some yeah. conversations, but um, it's always been there. And it's, it's a way that we move through the world and we pass it on. Mm -hmm. Can you just expand a little bit more about what Han is? Yeah. So um, it's, there isn't an actual definition in English, yeah. but it's like, it encompasses all these things of like this um, from oppressed peoples, an oppression that they've gone through, like um, long-term suffering, deep, sometimes deep bitterness, but this like internal, like groaning almost. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's carried within. Um, there's a quote from the wounded, heart of God by Andrew Sung. And I have it in the book, but, um, he said just even culturally, like, um, in American culture or in Western culture, a bird sings, but in Korean culture, the way that they describe that as a bird cries. And so it's just, it's just funny. Like the way that we see the world, depending on what we've been through and our ancestors have been through and our acknowledgement of that, um, really affects, um, how we see things and how we see other people. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that you've been learning about interger- intergenerational trauma. Is there anything else just from that that you've been learning that has really just stood out to you? No, I mean, so I took a class in college, it was just a decades ago, um, mm-hmm. and it was literature of the Holocaust. And and then another class was Blacks and Jews in the National Imagination. I remember those two classes really stuck with me because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, one thing where visit, where, where all the literature was talking about really um, oppressive parts of history. Um, and how it carried forward and how different people groups saw each other because of it. Um, and so I guess I feel like it already made sense. And then more recently, I read um, another book by someone who was studying um, the effects, like the children of those who had gone through the Holocaust or, you know, and mm-hmm. just how they, the same thing, like that they carried that, you know, that with them and um, that they're fine. Like scientists are finding those, those, that trauma interwoven in yeah. our things. And it's just fascinating. Um, it's terrifying in some ways, but it, it's, it's fascinating that, that, that that can even happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and specifically well, sp- with like situations yeah. of like poverty, um, war, oppression, anything like that. Yeah. Well, especially like whenever you look throughout history and you realize that like, you know, 150 years ago, like that's like great grandparents. Yeah. That's not that far. That's not that far away. No, there's so many things like that. When you just actually look at the dates, it's like, wow. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, One of the other things that I love, uh, I would love is, is there any specific piece of uh, Korean history or uh, just Korean culture that you wish just more people like knew about? Yeah. Um, oh gosh. I feel like there's so much and I'm still yeah. learning, you know, that I just yeah. love and I wish was, you know, normal or just, you know, more available. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something really specific. I love like, I mean, some of the things that I keep, I'm starting to explore even more, just some of the folk tales. And I tried to experiment with that a little bit in, at the, in the epilogue of the book. Um, but this, I guess this sense of respect that, um, the younger generations usually have for their elders, um, and not in a way that, you know, is, and I don't mean any ways that are oppressive or just like, you know, um, toxic in any way, but just some of that, just some of the value that's placed on, um, the older generation and not that they're perfect. Um, that Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, I love just the, the way that food, um, is a love language in Korean culture, um, the way that, you know, if you go, if you're in any Korean community um, or home, most likely the way that you're going to be loved on is, you know, if someone's asking you if you've, you've eaten um, and trying to feed you and feed yeah. you more um, and just, you know, the re- the reception of that food is also, you know, communicating love back. And so that's another huge thing. Um, Try to think of anything else that maybe is a little less, less known. I, I guess I just wish that we could um, get beyond the front door of so much, you know, like just, I mean, I love my, some of my sons did take one dough and yeah, I feel like they're just these little things that people know and kind of associate and think that's enough, but there's so much more, you know, beyond that, I think, um, which is true of people too, but yeah. um, I don't know if I'm thinking, Oh, another thing, one other thing that I think about a lot is just that, um, that I've learned too, as I've gotten older is that Koreans are very into hiking. Um, and for a long time, I said a nature, just very into nature and hiking. And for a long time, I only associated those things with kind of the Western world. And, and there are a lot of things like that, you know, but I really 
only associated that with the Western world. But then when I was in the country, you know, every Sunday you see people decked out in hiking gear and they go hiking up in the mountains and it's, you know, Korea is 70, 70 something percent mountainous. And so, mm. um, I guess just knowing little things like that, like it's a really beautiful part of the, the country and the culture, um, that a lot of people probably wouldn't associate with an Asian people group. Yeah. You know, you, uh, you alluded to the the folk tale that you talk about. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, uh, maybe, sure. Yeah. It, um, it was really fun to write it. Yeah. Um, it kind of is very connected obviously to the book in the chapters before, um, it was something that through the writing process, I don't know if I just needed more of a creative outlet, but it kind of came out, you know, for one of my kids during bath time was just telling the story. Um, and probably cause I was thinking a lot, um, about Korea and about Korean folk tales and tigers and, you know, the significance of tigers and magpies and all these different things in Korean folk tales and culture. Um, and so I don't have much more to say about it. Other no, it was really, really fun. Like, yeah. and I would love to, part of me is like, I want to explore more with folk tales and fantasy. Cause I, I loved, loved that. So, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I know, I know that we've talked about a lot of different things. Is there anything pertaining to the book or even just like, just anything else that you love learning about or anything like that, that you, that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, nothing that I can think of. I mean, I love just learning. I feel like there's so much I don't know. So I just love yeah. learning about any like different culture. My kids make fun of me all the time because I watch like every National Geographic documentary um, yeah. and the Disney Channel, every new one that comes up. So I think um, and the, all the animal ones and everything that I'm always like talking about some new thing that I learned about, you know, this, lately it's been elephants. Um, but yeah. I think it really coincides with just, um, I love learning about new things and new cultures, yeah. new ways of being. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. What have, what have you learned about elephants recently? Um, so, well, I don't know, I guess, so this is really cool. So one of yeah. the, uh, the secrets of elephants, I don't know if you're familiar, every time I bring this up, I think people are kind of like, what, <laughs> but there's a secret of elephants. Um, it's on Disney plus and it's one new national geographic thing, but there is this, um, this, this, I don't know what they call it, a group of elephants. I'm not sure what they called the group. I can't remember anymore. Mm-hmm. There was a specific name. Anyway, there was a group that was, um, they were kind of abandoned. And I don't know if, if poachers got to their parents, but it was a bunch of toddler elephants that were together. And one of them ended up falling into a well and was attacked by a hyena, I think, and lost um, his trunk. And so there was someone that's been an elephant researcher who has been following this group for a long time. Anyway, they um, they have kind of stuck together. And so this one elephant doesn't have a trunk and you know that's what they use to kind of reach up into the trees to get leaves to eat and all of that. Um, and so they were watching kind of just their social environment and he, this one couldn't really get any leaves. And so another toddler that um, was a part of this group was picking off the leaves and bringing them to this elephant. So of course I'm, I usually watch it when I'm on the elliptical and I'm like crying because <laughs> it's just this beautiful display. I just had no yeah. idea that they related socially in that way, or even just to imagine, you know, that an elephant can notice something like that and care mm. for another elephant. That's the, the same peer level, you know, the same age or whatever. So anyway, yeah. it was just one thing, just knowing that they could do that. Um, yeah, it's really beautiful. So yeah, that's cool. <laughs> well, anything, anything. I know that we've talked a lot about the book. Anything else in the book that you want to make sure to mention or talk about or cover? I don't think so. No, just yeah, read the book if it's of interest. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, well, I know that people are going to want to get the book. You know, tell me the dream again and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so my website is is easy. It's Tasha June. It's J U N um, dot com, and I'm on Instagram. 
I'm on all the things, but usually Instagram is the one place that I'm consistently in. And my handle is Tasha June B. So yeah. Awesome. Well, Tasha, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as I was reflecting and thinking about Tasha and I's conversation, one of the things that really stood out to me was this question that she asked in the middle of it, and it's, where are you hiding? Where am I hiding? Where is the part of me, or where, where am I most tempted to shield myself, to retreat? What parts of my life Am I most tempted not to to talk about? Where am I tempted to not show up as my full self? And then I think asking the question of what makes that so? What is it that, that, that I believe it's difficult for me to show up in this space? And interrogating that and figuring out, okay, what's behind that? What's the fear behind that? What am I afraid of? What will happen if I, what do I believe will happen if I believe, if I end up doing that? And learning, and part of it is learning that we don't have to do that. We don't have to hide ourselves. And I love what you said. It doesn't mean that you have to be uh, barging in with, with yourself but you don't need to be hiding it either. And so on the learner's corner, we want to create a place to where you could show up as yourself, to where you can engage in the type of things and you don't have to be afraid of, of these types of conversations as well. That's the reason why this podcast was created, to engage in those types of conversations. And so with that, I want to say, you know, subscribe to the Substack. And we're just going to keep learning and growing along the way and engaging and learning from all sorts of different things. And again, you can check out the show notes for that. Thank you to Tasha for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>